right, March Mad Men listeners, let's take another step toward determining which haunted house movie is the best ever. Here's the end of another night of recording that pairs two formidable films in single combat. Let's see how it turns out. Well, we're back, and we have one more matchup to adjudicate here, and let's talk about what our beverages of choice are. As we go into this one, I am about to open an old standby, a wolf pup. It's uh, not loaded in ABV, but uh, that's okay. At this point in the evening, I don't need uh, a scotch. So here it goes. There it is. Ah, nice. So, uh, Vic, what's your poison, buddy? I am I am not shying away from the ABV. I have a Founders uh, Backwood Bast- Backwoods Bastard, which is a, uh, a ale aged in oak bourbon barrels. That's a heavy hitter. Nice. I just spilled beer all over my computer, but it was worth it. <laughs> we did get that. That was awesome. That's not, almost like spilling a pot of boiling water onto yourself, but hey, we'll get there. <laughs> all right, Rich, what are you drinking, my friend? Uh, yeah, I also went the opposite direction. I went with uh, about two fingers of uh, Four Roses bourbon and an oatmeal cookie. Oh, the cookie is going to pack a punch. Yeah, they're just a, they're a good pairing. Uh, you and your wife make good cookies. I've been the beneficiary of uh, some of the Eckersley cookies before, and they were greatly appreciated. It's a metaphor, everybody. It's not really cookies. <laughs> before the listeners toss their cookies, <laughs> let's get into our next matchup. And, oh, man, this is one that is going to be painful for me. Because I really like both of these movies. So let's see what happens. But number three in our entire tournament after The Shining and Lake Mungo is Session 9. The Brad Anderson film. I'm going to not lie to y'all. I love this movie and I am definitely an apologist for it. And Rich uh, is pretty much on the record as hating it. So the sparks are going to fly here. So let's start with Vic as, you know, someone in between uh, or hopefully on my side. But uh, Vic, I know you like this movie. Tell us what your highlight sequence is in Session 9. Yeah, this is going to be hard with mom and dad fighting the whole time. But <laughs> I, my highlight, really my highlight is everything to do with the tapes. Mm -hmm. But specifically, I will narrow down, because I love the effect that they use on Simon's voice, the moment when they are touring the facility at the beginning and Gordon sees that image of the wheelchair in the hallway with the light, it's the cover image. I mean, that is an iconic horror image. They, they make better use of that wheelchair than the changeling does. Hello, Gordon. John, that is literally what I have written down, is hello, Gordon. It's that moment. It really sets the tone for this whole thing. That you, 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 it's going to be weird. It's going to be unsettling. It's going to come at you in weird ways. The visuals are going to be unsettling and that voice man god it's so terrifying that moment 
is brilliant. Yes, it is, man. Yes, it is. You are preaching to the choir. That voice chills me to the bone. I think it's amazing. And and that's part of why this movie is here as a three seed, is that I think in the annals of horror, that that character, as subtle as it is, as off-screen and, and limited as its involvement directly is, it just gives me the fucking heebie-jeebies, man. And if you've been listening to our show, you know it takes a lot to get me. And I'm a pretty jaded motherfucker. But that fucking Simon gives me the creeps. So my highlight sequence was a little harder uh, to come by than I expected as such a champion of the movie. Um, I will say that this movie kind of saves the best for last. It's mostly build up to the chain of reveals beginning with its plot point too. The first time I saw it, I was a little disappointed with the sequence where Josh Lucas goes back to the asylum at night to get the loot, and as an audience, we don't get much more than a tease as to what he encounters that night and what exactly happens to him. Now, kind of in a Coen Brothers kind of a way, once I understand the whole vision of the film and where all the pieces are fitting into place, I'm at peace with the sequence, and I like it a lot. It's very creepy. And while it sets you up for a traditional menace and kill as your expectation as an audience member, a horror fan, ultimately I think it makes sense with the story we're telling that you don't get that. You're denied that sort of cheap thrill. And I really like seeing him later as this kind of zombie stuck in a loop. What are you doing here? I just think it's exactly what it needs to be. So that, that's going to be my highlight sequence. Uh, Rich, I know you probably don't have one. Maybe it's the end credits, but what's your highlight sequence? (laughs) Look, we can put aside the fact that, you know, this is number four in our competition. This probably wouldn't have broken my top five asbestos removal films. (laughs) It's three, by the way, Rich. But, okay, let the record state. uh, Sorry, I just, uh, I nodded off. Like every time we, every time this movie comes up, I just kind of drift off. Oh, you're killing me, man. Look, this movie has some redeeming qualities. The lobotomy scene um, where, he, where he has to slowly pull the, the lobotomy pick out of another corpse yeah, um, in order to stick it into someone else's face. is a, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good horror moment. And that's worth noting because I do feel like one of the things that kept mystifying me throughout the the entire movie was how you could have the criticisms of Lake Mungo that you had and still feel like this was worthy of a top spot. Like this has the same exact problems that you were pointing out with Lake uh, Mungo. Uh, hello, uh, Lake Mungo is number two, so – I'm just saying, like, you you had a lot of complaints uh, when we were discussing the last batch of movies about how Lake Mungo, like, wasn't really a horror movie and, like, nothing, like, really scary was happening except for the fact that she was encountered by her dead self out in the middle of nowhere. The same thing could be said of of this movie. This movie is nothing, no, it's nothing but people, like, wandering around in boring rooms Doing and like the only horror shows up at the end. Like, okay, it's got you. You really think there's yeah? You but but, okay, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What you're saying implies that there's no mood, atmosphere, build, dread whatsoever. That is not true. 
if you're watching this movie totally hostile to it, maybe you don't find any of it creepy at all. But are you really saying that it's like just watching people wander around rooms? First of all, I'm totally comfortable saying that I went into this movie with a very open mind. I was like, they must be seeing something that like I'm not seeing because both of you guys are into it. And yes, I do. Not only, are, not only are they wandering into like a bunch of boring rooms, but they're the same like two fucking rooms over and over and over again. Um, and especially compared to Lake Mungo, by the way, just, you know, I mean, if you brought it up, like so much of that movie is is really not even trying to be scary. I mean, it really is about sort of this family tragedy and say what you want about this movie. It it may not work for you, but it honestly is trying to get under your skin almost from frame one. Like there is not a moment in this movie where it's playing a beat that's, you know, it's really sweet and, you know, we're playing with relationships and we're trying to be heartwarming or we're trying to like, ha ha ha, that's really funny. I mean, none of that, none of that is happening in, in Lake Mungo. That is a, that's a misrepresentation, but I, I guess that's a discussion that we could potentially have an, another time. Mom, Dad, stop fighting! You're scaring me! Well, maybe, maybe we're both right in the sense that, like, I'm saying this movie is unrelentingly scary, at least, you know, in a subtle way, and you're saying that Lake Mungo is, is trying to be unrelentingly scary in its own way. Well, we can leave it at that for now, but, yeah. yeah okay, I mean, go that, ahead. That's basically what I'm saying. It's, uh, it's not so much a dig against this movie, it's that I don't understand how you can have the critiques of Lake Mungo that you had and still feels passionately about this film because I feel the thing that you were describing about Lake Mungo that I admittedly personally don't, don't feel about that movie, but it's like, I feel it when I, when I watch this where it's like, I, um, anyways, whatever. There, there are clear parallels that can be drawn. And I think that there's definitely like a subjectivity where one of us could see session nine, the way you're seeing it. And one of us could see Lake Mungo, the way I'm seeing it. And, but we're kind of seeing the exact same thing because both movies are unconventional in a way. And we'll leave it. I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah. Hey, Hey assholes. You know, these movies might wind up paired against each other later, right? (sighs) That could be exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, save it, save it for the court. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. So, so, so forgive the digression. My, yeah, my comment was less a comment about Lake Mungo or this film. It was just exactly. Well, then don't call me out again. (laughs) It was, it was an attack on John. It was, it was. That's good good material. John. Um, anyways. Okay. My highlight is you guys mentioned the, the voice, obviously the, the voice is the, the star of this movie. The tapes are the, are the star of this movie as far as I'm concerned. And I really was very drawn in by just that first, I believe it was the first session um, that the character of, of Mike, when he finds the tape and he is going through them and you're, you're sort of first seeing the, the nine reel to reel tapes that are, that are laid out and you're having to piece together the information that's written on the outside of them. There are these labels, all these different names written on it. And you're listening to the, this interview with what seems to be a little girl that then starts to transition to different uh, characters. I mean, it's fitting that it's an audio recording that's the star of this film because you're right. The sound design of this film is really compelling. I think they spent a lot of time on it. It doesn't always make a ton of sense, but it is generally very creepy and, and atmospheric. And the acting and the performances even in, their, in the recordings – are very strong. And I, the whole like people flipping back and forth through personalities is, is something we've certainly seen in other movies. 
and it's done very well here um, in a way that for, for some reason, like my, I guess the, the go-to that I would reach, that I would reach for would be, it felt as fluid as the way that, uh, James, uh, McAvoy switches in, uh, in split, yeah. um, with much more menace, um, and, and an unawareness, um, of one another. And so, uh, those bits were really well done. I mean, many of the sequences where they go back to the tapes are very well done. But that first one, where you're kind of piecing together that 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 this is what this movie is going to be about, and that this is not just a creepy voice you're hearing; these are characters um, who are going to be helping guide us through the, the the tale. It's a cool little piece of filmmaking. Well, it's good to hear that you came to your senses. <laughs> I thought that Hello Gordon was also a, a very cool moment. I loved how subtle it was. And almost something that you could have missed. All right. Well, Vic, I know it's going to be a challenge for you to find anything about this movie that doesn't work. It, it was for me. But uh, go ahead and, and try. Uh, maybe it's a helicopter shadow. Uh, what's the low light sequence in this film? You're never going to let me live that helicopter shadow down. <laughs> nope. And I'm never going to let Kubrick live it down. So fuck him. My low light is one of those that really left out at me immediately. Even just thinking back on this movie about the thing that seemed the silliest to me. And it is, I believe it's Jeff that, that's Gordon's nephew. And they, oh the, oh, the breaker went out. Jeff, get down there and check the breaker. I can't, I got nyctophobia. What? Nyctophobia. I'm afraid of the dark. Okay, I'll check the breakers. Like it's the it's the strangest character trait that you would that you would pick a person with a, a crippling phobia of the dark to help you remediate asbestos in an abandoned mental hospital with miles of tunnel underneath. I don't know. It, it doesn't it doesn't work narratively. It doesn't really work in terms of giving the character any depth. And it just sounds silly. The first and look, like I acknowledge wholeheartedly that nyctophobia is a real thing, and I think that his portrayal of it when he's stuck in the tunnel and the lights go out is probably pretty accurate. Like that's what I've heard. Is it is this? It's like a panic attack. Like it's a crippling, almost almost claustrophobic feeling. It just it just doesn't work. It just feels sort of silly and and sort of forced. And it doesn't add anything, I guess, would be the other thing, except that it's it's why Mike goes down to check the, the breakers, but that's that doesn't seem worthy of it. And the, my backup, my, my runner-up, is the scene when Mike explains how the lobotomies are done. It's totally necessary in terms of the narrative. Like, I understand why the scene is there. It's not extraneous, but it's just not organic. It's very, It feels like they're shoehorning in this bit of information that you're definitely going to need for later. And it's a creepy, I mean, the, the actual description is creepy, but where it lands and how it lands in the film doesn't work. It feels a little, a little awkward and yeah, just, just needlessly expository. Huh? Yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought that kind of a nitpicky thing about the nyctophobia that, that, that one also stood out to me. But mostly just the fact that he was like, he's played off as such a dum dum, and then he's like, "No, man, I got, I got nyctophobia, you know, a fear of the dark." It's like, why the fuck did you just say he was afraid of the dark? No, I mean that was authentic to me. That you, you want to justify 
your your weakness. It's not that you're a little pussy. It's that you have a fucking condition. That makes sense to me 100%. Um, it's like, oh, you know, I have a, it's an illness. So don't judge me. You know, I'm not just a little wuss. It's it's an affliction that I have. It's a condition. That that totally worked for me. I disagree with you that everything that, you, that, that both of you have said. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say it's like Shakespeare, but I don't think the, the, the issue with the nyctophobia thing is that I would have a bigger problem with it if like the plot hinged on it and it was sort of almost a, you know, duus machina thing where, well, we need the, the nyctophobia to have him do something incredibly important that no human being would ever do because it's going to get everyone killed. But we're going to hide behind the fact that he's afraid of the dark. You know, it's just a little thing and it, it adds a dimension. Otherwise the character wouldn't have much of a, a standout, position in the cast and that's that's his thing and to me there's a setup and there's a payoff and it's fine but the movie doesn't lean on it too heavily they don't you know it doesn't become contrived so i was fine with it and i really like the the writing and the dialogue and the acting associated with it and and also i was almost i was contemplating vic putting as a highlight even though it's it's not really a highlight which is why i didn't the sequence where the mike is talking about the history, and I believe in involving the uh, lobotomies too. I just I like the intercutting. I like the sort of dynamism. I like the creepiness. I like the information that's conveyed. That sequence is definitely not a weak point for me. Uh, I never would have thought of that. I'll, I'll reevaluate it perhaps, but that did not strike me at all. I do have a low light sequence, uh, even though yeah, nothing rubs me the wrong way about this movie overall. I have to admit, it's cheap and manipulative when Gordon sees Phil buying drugs on the work site. This whole red herring thing with Phil doesn't work as well once you've seen the movie at least once or twice. And the whole deal is especially weak when you realize the dude is buying marijuana, which is obviously legal now. I buy that he'd be cagey about it at the time and with the profession and he's not the boss and all that kind of thing. But it's kind of funny that this whole thing is, is that the dude has had, Phil being David Caruso, is that he's had a, a breakup and he's hitting the wacky tabacky. <laughs> <laughs> While the movie really is playing the card that he could be our killer and we should distrust him and it's an essential sleight of hand with whether it's Gordon or Phil, who's the murderer here, uh, it's kind of a whodunit and I... I totally down with that. And I do distrust David Caruso in general. So it's good casting, but in retrospect, the whole kind of buying drugs subplot is, is, is kind of weak. So that's, that's my low light sequence. And now it's time for rich who, uh, he could talk about maybe 88 of the 90 minutes, uh, running time here, but try to try to narrow it down to one low light sequence. If you, if you can there, rich. I also could be wrong, just to go off the thing you were saying. I could be wrong, but I believe he smokes weed around uh, Gordon at some point. Like he's, he's, smoking, he's smoking weed like throughout the entire movie, isn't he? No, no. He's smoking it. You see him smoking it in the car. Before he gets there. He, before Gordon gets there. And then he very quickly sort of puts it out. And, and you can see he sort of looks like he's trying to conceal it from Gordon. He's just something like, oh, you're, I see you're up early too, or 
you know, something to that effect. Yeah, it's a total, you know, authentic awkwardness of he yeah. didn't expect the guy to get there and he doesn't want to be caught smoking weed. And yeah, that 100% Vic. The scene that stood out to me is actually one that you mentioned, John, which is the scene. It's the first lunch break scene that we get. And then somehow it transitions to uh, the character of Mike again, breaking down this. Um, this is not the scene where he talks about the lobotomy. This is, that's actually a separate scene. This is the scene where he goes into this prolonged uh, story about how the hospital was closed down because they were practicing repressed memory uh, retrieval of some kind. And there's this elaborate and lurid tale of this girl who was being abused by her father and her grandparents. And they were taking her out and they were part of some sort of demon sex cult and they were getting her pregnant and then pulling out the baby and then cutting the hearts out and then eating and then cooking the baby and eating the baby. And then, and then Gordon cuts him off. And the entire story is, is filled with, you're right, John, these cutaways to insects. There's like, there's like B roll of like spiders. Why are they cutting to grasshoppers? Why are we even hearing this story? Other than the fact that it's bringing up and dismissing the idea of, of repressed memories in the first place. Is it just to plant the idea of, of repressed memories? And if so, what does that play into? That's just playing into Gordon not remembering what he did to his family? I think you're, you're, you're sort of uh, groping your way to something very important there, which, yes, the entire movie sort of hinges on an evil force getting into people's heads if they're vulnerable and it causes them to overreact in moments of extreme stress or pain. And then their minds are broken by guilt of this out of character act. And they disassociate from what they've done because they're yeah, good. That, you know, that that's a great topic to explore. The story that he tells has absolutely nothing to do with that. Feel free to go back and listen to it. It's not talking about that. It's talking about someone who is an abuse survivor that misremembers uh, what happened to them and then tries to to exploit it. I'm not sure what the point of going into the story is. Maybe there's some sort of reason. Um, I mean, again, the people who put this together certainly seem very capable. So I'm I'm not trying to be like glib about it. Um, what I will be glib about is that the whole predication of this conversation in the first place is this conversation that keeps popping up throughout the entire first half of the film, spending all this time talking about the big rush that they have to finish the job and how they're going to have to conquer this whole hospital in in three weeks, no, two weeks, no, one week, but they're all going to get a bonus and everyone's upset about it. And there's a lot of like drama that goes back and forth and bickering. These people don't do a goddamn thing in this movie. They knock off early. They take long lunches. They're (laughs) always cleaning the same room, literally from start to finish. Those two guys who are on like the floor buffer are in that room for the entire movie. Like no one is in a hurry. So why do we have to spend so much goddamn time talking about how much time they have to complete the hospital? Like to me, this is a problem of just like – like validity of the storytelling. No, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. They make clear that it's 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 like only certain sections of the hospital, and we see the walkthrough of those sections that are the ones that need to be dealt with. Not the entire giant place needs to be completely dealt with in one week. It's certain areas, and those are in fact the areas that the guys are working in. So I, I, I get your point, but but that that is addressed. 
they knock off and like the sun's at like two o'clock. Like, <laughs> I'm just saying like, okay. there's, there's okay. a lot of ink spilled over over the timeline. But more importantly, the tension of the timeline seems like it's setting up something that is going to play into pushing these guys past a breaking point or, you know, causing them to be working, you know, all hours of the of the night and you know, some sort of like sensory deprivation to with the dark. I mean, who knows? It could be anything. You're setting up this major pivotal tension point of the film that that goes nowhere. Like beyond the first act. Really what they're setting up, I think, is the pressure that was on Gordon that he was yeah. gonna he was gonna do the, he was gonna do whatever he had to do to get this job because his company was getting ready to fold. And that's the the pressure that's on him is what drives him or what really what gives the opening for Simon, I think. Yeah. Uh, which we can talk about when we get to the ending. I also agree that I like 30 minutes into the movie, I was like, well, there's no way. Like if this is, if they're on like a super tight timeline, like the first thing Josh Lucas does is take a smoke break. And the first thing Mike does is go down to fix the breakers and not come back. There's only, <laughs> there's only like two people working. I don't know why they're still talking about getting it done in a week. Like I feel like after the first day and Caruso's like, Hey, good day, everybody. What, what you, are you talking about? <laughs> you, you could say that they, they are being lured by their various weaknesses and they're being entranced by things and they're being distracted from, from the job. I mean, look, if this is the kind of weakness of this movie that we want to pick apart, like, again, maybe we'll get to it in the next round or two rounds from now or whatever. Um, but let's not, let's not dwell too much on the fucking timeline of the, of the job. I don't know. The movie like felt a little structureless to me. I wasn't seeing the build up. I wasn't feeling moment other than like a lot of tension. I did feel a lot of tension and I agree. It's a very tense movie and they're very good at building mood, but I didn't feel like the story was ratcheting you up to a catharsis in any way towards the end. But you know, I'm, I'm sure there are ways that you can point out that I'm wrong and I'm, I'm open-minded to hear them. And Vic, I thought your explanation of why the timeline is relevant is, uh, is also totally acceptable. There's no sense that they're rushing. There's no sense that they're doing this any differently than they would a job where they had two weeks or three weeks. And, and because they make such a big point of it in dialogue and other scenes, it seems like that would be relevant in other places, and it, and it isn't. Like it's, it's only relevant as regards Gordon. It's not relevant as regards the the actual work that they're doing and when they're removing stuff. Okay, guys, guys, it's a ten thousand dollar bonus. There's six of them. It's not ten thousand per person. The other guys are not as motivated. Period. Like I, I I'm not saying it's flawless. It's genius, but it's it's not completely ridiculous. That, that the other guys aren't busting their asses. So let's just, let's move on. We'll leave that for later. I think hopefully a lot of the suspense comes from, you get these fragments of what Gordon does that, that fateful evening after the first day on the job or right after they, they get the bid and he has the little gift box with the, peanut butter and, and we keep getting clues later of what happens to this, this gift box that he's a uh, basket rather that he's bringing into his wife. And that is supposed to be setting you on 
this disquieting journey of, of figuring out what is going on with Gordon. And hopefully you're engaged by that uh, rather than dwelling on, on some of the other things that, uh, that you could be distracted by. For me, I even before I, you know, the first time I saw this movie, I knew I was watching something important. And maybe I'm just really used to American independent films and kind of the sort of fragmentary storytelling style where you get these little brief scenelets and you know you're going to, you're going to, it's going to suss out what happened bit by bit. It's going to keep adding to that, that glimpse that we saw. And so I was receptive to that from the beginning and I certainly am now. But let's, let's talk about the ending. And I think it would be in our best interest with this one to start with Vic. Then have uh, Rich weigh in, and I will um, give my thoughts at the end, and then we'll vote. How's that sound? Cool. Awful. Terrible. Bad idea. Let's <laughs> totally reverse it. <laughs> I'm going to get one of my kids in to talk about the ending. I think that's the way to go. Yeah, please. Yeah. Please. Go for that. I hope, I hope they obsess about, like, the bid and did the guys ask for enough money and what kind of equipment costs were involved, and that's really the, the flaw. Of the film. I did. I, so I, I was man. watching. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, not, we shouldn't get. No, no, just keep going. Okay. So we bought some some bookshelves for our office, and I was trying to build these while I was watching it, which made for an interesting experience of sort of watching these guys work while I was trying to work on it. And but it really like I kept getting sucked into it, and I wound up fucking up the bookshelf, so I have to take it all apart. Am I the only person left on on Earth that can just watch a fucking movie? Just sit down and watch a movie by himself and take the movie in? And it doesn't matter. I don't have chores. I'm not on my phone. It, you know, somebody else in the house isn't going to sort of be weighing in. I, I don't know, man. I guess I, I'm living a charmed life. Yes, John. Yes, you are. Called not being a parent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the fears that I had as we came up to the ending. My one of my sons, they can see the television from one of the beds, and we've had experiences. We've been watching Sex Education, the uh, Netflix show, which is terrific, by the way, and I highly recommend it. But we were watching, Emily and I are sitting there watching it, and it comes to a scene where. One of the two of the two of the male characters kiss, and we just heard from the bedroom behind us, ew. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, like left up, and I was like, all right, Sawyer's awake. I mean, I guess in the overall scheme of things that he's watching us watch, that's not bad. But so when I was watching this, and we got to the end, and I was like, if Sawyer's watching this, it's gonna fuck him up for like months maybe years like he's been talking to his therapist about having caught the end of this movie from the foot of his brother's bed so by the way that's a huge endorsement for the film i'm just gonna say that right now and it and it is i mean look this is what i would say the when we finally get to simon when he shows up in those tapes i said this when we when we first introduced this movie it's one of the most unsettling upsetting scenes I've ever encountered like it is a turn on the lights whatever you have to do to get comfortable because I almost had a panic attack the first time I watched this the problem is that you get after that and as Gordon is sort of catching up on what's going on we get the hallucinatory Phil we get the hallucinatory David Caruso 
yelling at him. And once you sort of know what's going on, you go, oh, yeah, no, that's just a hallucination. So once you've seen it once or twice, you really put those things together. But so much of what's included in that scene is this feint in the direction of Phil being the bad guy, which I don't hate overall in the story. I really like the scene when Gordon is pointing out that no one else talked to Amy, that Phil was the one who talked to Amy. And, you know, when she said that Josh Lucas had gone to Miami and that felt like if you were going to, you're going to plant a seed that maybe Phil's the bad guy, that felt like a, a, a really good organic believable way to do it but what you get is this weird feint from gordon's perspective of oh it was phil oh it was phil oh it was phil and then it turns out that it's gordon so that i the something about the perspective of the film that we're watching it from gordon's point of view makes it hard to understand narratively what's happening in that final scene but it is, I think, on two or three viewings, you're able to piece it together, or at least I was in a way that it felt like I had a satisfactory idea of what was going on. But I did some research today. There's a lot of weird theories about what's going on in the end of this movie. There, I've seen some people who think that Gordon may have been a patient at this hospital. And there was some evidence. I, I don't remember all of it off the top of my head, but there was some evidence to support that. Is this all in Gordon's head? Is this a a Jacob's Ladder scenario? And we're just watching him come to grips with the fact that he's just mentally ill and has been hanging out in this hospital since he murdered his wife and daughter. I don't buy any of that. None of that really worked for me. I have my own picture of how all these things tied together. But the fact that there's that kind of ambiguity around it that's the kind of thing that I really like in a horror film. So I think there's there's some really good stuff and there's some stuff that doesn't work so well, but boy, it's effective. I don't know. It, it really just is an ending. When this movie ends, and that, especially that the, just those last lines from Simon, you know, I live in the weak and the weary, Doc. Is it weary? Wounded. Wounded. I live in the weak and the wounded. I mean... That shit sent me off with chills in my um, down my spine. I had to put on a, a Scrubs episode before I could go to sleep after this. So <laughs> every night, you Vic. It, it's that's that's. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? Zach Braff is his whoopee. He is actually it's, it's Donald Face on, but that's it's still neither here. And he is on on the record as saying he really wants John C. McGinley to beat the crap out of him. So yeah. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in the ending of this. I apologize if I rambled too long. You did a little bit, but hey, that's the show. That's the format. All right, uh, Rich, ramble on for us on how much you hate the ending of Session 9. I like the last line. I mean, it's a cool idea for a for a haunting or for a, a ghost or a, a demon or something I read was just, was saying that this is a classic genius Loki um, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but that's what how someone else described it. This idea that it is a evil spirit that that is able to somehow pass between people and and haunt um, because their spirits are are weak or wounded, or at least that was my takeaway. Maybe you guys interpret that a, a different way. No, that's pretty much it. I thought that was a cool reveal. I found the reveal of like Gordon and his, you know, his 
his misadventures throughout the the film and the and the various flashbacks of the you know him killing all the the other guys it was fine you, know, you hit the nail on the head with like this is like definitely this is american independent cinema at the, at the end of the you know 1990s and the in the early 2000s multiple personalities were were everywhere um for some reason in all genres during that time period and i just like i i, I just wasn't surprised by any of it the whole like gordon killed his you know w- went to the house and killed his wife i mean like to me that was apparent if not the first time we see him outside his wife's house then certainly the second so it was pretty clear to me that he was the one with the dark secret it was pretty clear the first time that we see him on the phone apologizing to his wife that he wasn't actually talking to his wife and that the phone was dead the shot of him looking like a look like a cuckoo bird talking into a into a broken um cell phone was was fun i'm never a fan of films and many films have done this like even though the orphanage did it i thought it was interesting that you liked that john because it kind of irked me even in the orphanage i don't care for films where it's like hey now that we got to the end we're going to show you all the the parts that explain the story it's like well why didn't you show me them earlier like that's just that's selective storytelling like it'd be one thing i guess like you can argue that like the the character is now realizing it and so if you're viewing through the character's point of view then you're getting to see what what they're now remembering okay i'll I'll talk myself into into accepting that but it, it always just feels like a you know, now we'll now we'll show all at the end because we have to wrap the movie up and, and explain what a cool tale it was. Just the the whole thing wasn't very inspiring to me. Um, creepy, uh, yeah. Simon Simon was creepy, and the idea of his haunting was cool. Um, but Gordon's story just wasn't taking me there. Okay, for me, I think it's a great act three, and it, it makes everything work. I think there's plenty of red meat here for fans of the genre, even if we took our time getting here. And there aren't a ton of murders up until this point, and ghosties, you know, full frontal apparitions and, and stuff like that. I think there's a lot of disturbing violence and horror in a short period of time. And as we talked about before, Larry Fessenden's death is especially brutal with the use of the lobotomy tool. I do find it humorous, by the way, guys, if you looked at the Wikipedia for The Orphanage, Larry Fessenden was attached to the remake of The Orphanage. So he was going to direct The Orphanage uh, remake, English language remake. <laughs> but anyway, here he's getting killed in Act 3. That didn't happen? Yeah, probably. Um, but, I mean, that guy is, dude, he's, he's the Where's Waldo of American independent horror. Yeah. I will definitely say that. Dude is everywhere. So I think, as I, as I said before, uh, all the clues are there with Gordon. Actually, uh, Rich, it sounds like you were way ahead of me in terms of figuring out what was going on with him, though I, I sensed it, I would say. I think it's, for me, it's very well set up and paid off. It's masterful, the composition of that subplot in my eyes. But the fact that this guy was manipulated by Simon from the very beginning uh, when he first set uh, foot in the asylum, it makes perfect sense once you know and you learn Mary Hobbs' story, the woman on the on the tapes, the patient uh, that did session one through nine. Um, I think the best endings in a horror film, in any genre really, they make you think about shit that happened long after the movie is over. 
Well, I thought about this, and I think Vic was alluding to this as well. Like, this this movie got in my head, because the idea of an evil force getting into my head, if I am vulnerable, if I could overreact, if I could get angry, if I could lose control in extreme pain or even just stress, would my mind possibly break out of guilt and inability to face what I did as a hopefully, at least in my own mind, a good person, I, I would be this a plaything of an incredibly sinister Machiavellian entity in that scenario. And I, I find it absolutely terrifying. I fucking love Simon. I think he's scarier than 95% of the demons in these movies. He is playing chess, not checkers. This dude ain't making poopy smells and tugging little girls' bedclothes off the bed. This thing is a puppet master, and I love it. That final exchange of voiceover in this movie, while we fly over without a helicopter shadow, this terrifyingly huge insane asylum is one of my favorite, most haunting endings to any movie in, in the horror genre, let alone the movies in our tournament. You guys have mentioned it, but I'll just say it. The doctor says, And where do you live, Simon? And then he responds, I live in the weak and the wounded, Doc. Because that might be the scariest evil of all. The one that plays on the weakness and the damage of otherwise good people. So they make a mistake. A mistake that there's no coming back from. And I fear that more than anything, anything in this world. If I can die a hero defending my family, I'm okay with that. But if somehow I am the bad guy, that's the worst. That's the worst thing ever. And that's what, that's what happens to Gordon. For me and what I look for in horror, that is a home run. So I love the ending of this movie and yeah, there's certain things about maybe the editing of the David Caruso character and stuff that isn't optimal, but I think overall it's a great actory and one of the more powerful endings in a horror movie, let alone in our tournament. So that's my case. Run with it, guys. Who's who's left? Say say your piece. You mentioned the the lack of a helicopter shadow. Just to bring it back to the shining, I wish we'd had a B story about Larry Fessenden getting to the hospital from, like, the Jersey Shore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like 10 minutes of him like, renting a car, traveling, yeah. stopping at McDonald's. That's that's yeah. what this movie needed. Yeah. Good point, Vic. I was, I was curious, did, did anyone else, like, read the thing, or has anyone seen the scenes of, apparently there's a whole subplot that you can still see elements of in here, where there's there's someone living in the in the asylum. Oh, the homeless person. Yeah. Uh, I remember I did the first time I saw this movie, I rented a Netflix DVD and the DVD had special features. And I do remember one of the special features was about the homeless guy. Uh, yeah. And they ended up excising that from the movie. In fact, it was the homeless guy in one version that, that killed Mike. I think. But yeah, I do remember that. Uh, let's get to the vote. Uh, it goes without saying, I am voting for... Uh, uh, what? John, we, John we, haven't, we haven't talked about the pact yet. Oh, God. 
<laughs> I forgot. I forgot like what it was up against. <laughs> This is I know you're, I, I know you're anxious to go for session nine. Uh, you know, no, it's not that cut and dried. I just, I totally lost the thread. Like if we had already talked about the other movie. Okay, oh, that was that funny. Was, that was an easy con. There's only one choice. <laughs> <laughs> I really do want to talk about the pact. Obviously. All right. I just okay. Uh, senior moment. All right, well, let's leave that there for now. It's time to talk about the 14 seed in our little game, and that is The Pact. Uh, incidentally, I have no idea why this movie is called The Pact. Maybe one of you guys can help with that. Um, but I will say before we get started, for the record, The Pact would have beaten either Poltergeist or The Orphanage for me, so the process has failed this movie. I don't have anything to back this up, but because I, I did find myself thinking about the title, The Pact, that there must have been a pact between the mother and her brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, was let, that um, makes sense. But, yes, but there's no, uh, but there's no, there's certainly no reference to it. That's just you. You really have to do uh, a little homework. You have to you have to make that jump yourself. The movie does not give that to you. My highlight is. The first ghost attack scene when Liz disappears, the movie up to this point has had a lot of very static camera movements and, and or very smooth camera movements, I guess. And this felt like the first time that it gets very jumpy and jittery and that really got a hold of me. And I just think there is something about the effects of her being thrown around the room that feels more visceral than in similar scenes. And I I was trying to come up with examples. And of course, Poltergeist is one because it's pretty much what happens to Joe Beth Williams. I found this way more effective. Like it just, it's hard to articulate why, but she, as she's trying to run out of the house and she's kind of getting pulled back and tossed around she gets out of the house, realizes that her niece is still in there, and Annie has to run back in. And then she gets even more violently flung around the room. It winds up with this great image of the knife stuck in the wall, which, of course, we'll realize is sort of significant later. I find that scene enormously tense and terrifying, and it really kicks the movie off. It's taken sort of a slow burn to get there. And once it gets there, man, it, it really kicks off with a, a terrifying gut punch. You, you touched on a great, great sequence, but there's so much to, to kind of contemplate and wonder about. Why is it throwing her around like that? Can it just open doors and throw the knife at the wall? Like, why does it need to compel her to do it? I think this is a movie that... I'm not going to, you know, kind of do what you guys did with session nine and in this forum, pick it apart. But I, I had a lot of questions about things that just did not add up or loose threads or things that bothered me. And it's a problematic movie for me, but I still really like it. And I think that you're touching on one of the things that I really love about the movie is sort of the visual style and the kineticism of these sequences. There's a lot of great scenes in this movie. So props to you for, for picking out that one. I'm with you, but uh, Rich, what, uh, what don't you weigh in, man? Well, unfortunately I don't have a backup and I chose the same scene. I think you make a good point, John, and I, I, I will get back to the, the scene real quickly. 
this film is it is it is largely coasting on style. I am still shocked by the fact that we looked into it and I believe this filmmaker does not have another film or maybe has one other film um, that they've made other than this. I, I could be wrong, um, but he has not gone on to have like a, a great career that we're aware of anyways. Because it does feel like the directing is where this film really excels. And if it wasn't for the style, I don't think it would have the same impact that it does because there are some some issues in the script. I mean, the dialogue I actually in this movie I think is straight up bad. Um, in some places more than others, but it's just a, it's it's a little ham fisted and and um, but the, yeah. So this moment and to me the thing that really worked about this scene is as you point out, Vic is is not only that it sort of bursts into this this kinetic attack scene, but I really love the dynamic of uh, tossing someone around and terrorizing them and getting this woman who really is like kind of a, a lone wolf character. Right. And, and she gets out of the house and she's managed to escape and escape a very small haunted house, you know, on, on, on top of that. So it's like, she gets out and then you remember that she's been at least temporarily that this child has, has become her ward where she has to return into the house to, to rescue the child. So you've already been introduced to the, to the terror inside. And then she has to make this, this split decision to, to go in and retrieve the little girl. I do think that there's sort of a, a lingering question, which is there's also another person in the house. She's disappeared at that point, Liz. Um, yeah, but she's supposed to be there at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. She's supposed to be there as well. And, and I guess she's just out of luck, but um, I do love the fact that, yeah, she's, she gets to get out of the house and then is given a reason that forces her to go back in and, and confront it again. And I agree, the way that they shoot the knife is is very cool. I love it when they come back again to the house and the, the knife is still there. Um, it's a very ominous visual. Um, and it does set up what you're pointing out, John, is 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 a weakness of the film. It's it's interesting that it's kind of a there's sort of a dichotomy here. The thing that is making the movie cool is also one of its detractors. Um, but it, it's a good scene. And, and other than that, I'd say there are a lot of good scenes. My other ones would be closer to the end of the film. So we can save them for the ending. All right. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to go with, uh, the dream sequence in the middle, which I was more kind of into this time than the last time we watched it or the first time. Cause I, we get clues that this can't be real, uh, little subtle things that obviously are surreal, but I think it still catches us off guard as an audience. It's one of those dream sequences where you slowly build to the batshit nutsness of it, but the disquiet begins in something that could be rooted in reality. Because we know she's at this motel, and she's hitting the vending machine, and she sees a creepy dude in another room who does happen to be Judas, her uncle, um, but the audience isn't clear on that necessarily yet, and she's been kind of maybe dreaming about this guy all along, which raises some other interesting questions, but the dread is building, even though there's a surreal vibe, and the dress that this woman, Jennifer Glick, seemed to either wear a lot, or at least on the day she was both photographed frequently and murdered, is is quite striking, and... <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of there's a bit of a coincidence uh, with yeah. that. Out. 
Definitely, definitely. But equally striking is her rotting, decapitated head, which we see here, and our protagonist leaping through the air in ultra slow-mo, nips popping, reaching in futility for the door before it slams on her. It's all pretty fucking memorable. I don't normally like uh, dream sequences, but this really worked for me, and I do think that the impact of it at a a critical moment in the film brings some classic horror content where, where it's needed and uh, also, you know, continues to undermine the sort of psychological stability, stability of our protagonists. So that's my choice, but I'll kick us off with low light sequence while I've got the baton. There's a, a scene where Katie lots loads. I don't know the, the star who generally I really like, I really like her presence, her charisma, her sort of, uh, non-verbal acting usually is just fantastic in my opinion, but her acting falls off a cliff in this one scene. And I think this might be sort of the kind of thing that Rich was alluding to with dialogue. And maybe it's a combination of both. And I didn't really notice it until my third watch, but she and Casper Van Dien are in the secret room and she starts yelling about it in this agitated state and she just seemed really off her game. It's not entirely fake, but it's just not that convincing or naturalistic or powerful. You know, maybe you guys would find it a subtle thing, but I, I couldn't believe it was the same actress for a second. I don't know if they were rushing that day. Maybe they shot out a sequence or it was early in the shoot and she hadn't got her legs under her yet with the character. But it's definitely not her finest hour and it kind of takes me out of the movie. So that's what I'm going to mention. I wish I remembered what the dialogue was. Um, it's bad. I should have taken down like some like sample dialogue, but it, it's a lot of, yeah. And it's a lot of like just stating the obvious, mm-hmm. um, you know, or saying what they're seeing, which is always just, you know, that's just filler in terms of, in terms of screenplay. I went with a scene that I think we flagged on our first viewing, the scene where actually immediately following my highlight scene, Annie goes to the uh, police department and she's introduced to uh, Casper Van Dien's character of Bill Creek. Um, and he he immediately proceeds to, to charm her with um, with his shtick about, like, when he wants a cigarette, he eats a shitty ice cream. I don't know where he got it from, but he gives her ice cream with a stick. And she just sort of, like, sneers at him. And then, and then he wins her over with his, his charming dialogue about – how she reminds him of, uh, or she reminds him of her, his daughter. Yeah, she's a real fucking bitch too. Ha 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 ha. And then she just opens up and starts saying, you know, everything that she's thinking. And then he also has this whole like line of thinking where he he ties together all these convoluted events where he's like, he's like, look, like you show up at like four a.m. and like there's a knife in the wall and you know you've got your sister's kid and and she's a drug addict and you know her social workers here and you know now you're here in like the police station like what's a cop supposed to think and i'm and i'm just listening to this i'm like i don't like i don't what the fuck is a cop supposed to think like that story doesn't add up to anything this was a, a good example of like they were trying to have this it's not a meet cute necessarily but they were trying to have this little character building moment introducing the police officer and, you know, putting Casper's performance aside, it's just, there's nothing compelling about the development of these two as a duo. And I I will say, I don't feel like their dynamic improves much throughout the course of the movie. He always feels like a, like a vestigial part of her character. 
he's like a vestigial tail, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't bother me as much though. I do think, yeah, the idea that like she killed her, her sister and her cousin and then immediately went to the, the police department to report it. Yeah. That, that is kind of a far fetched thing. Not the most obvious uh, thought that any cop in the world would have. So uh, I see your point there, but I, I, I found the scene, you know, somewhat charming and, goofy and somewhat effective. And I could see that for her kissing her ass or being phony was not the way to, to get to her and, you know, being like kind of frank and, and, and funny in a sort of crude way was actually the way to disarm her. I could kind of get behind that, but I, I, I get it. I just want to say as regards your low light that you picked a scene that Casper Van Dien was in but your problem with the scene was the other actor, and that feels like a win for him. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't hate him in this. I really don't personally. I I I agree. I don't. I don't hate him in this. He's he's fine. He's it's not the most naturalistic performance, but it's fine. That right. said, my top low light is Casper Van Dien and the ice cream. That's literally what I wrote, just Casper Van Dien and the ice cream. I also just mentioned this isn't really a low light, but I did wonder who gets the blueprints for a house they inherit. That yeah. seemed odd to me. Can you go to like the Hall of Records and get that or something? Exactly. Yeah. It's not like it's not something the lawyer gives you when they <laughs> when you inherit the house. But it's such a crucial plot point that like they just had to throw it in there. Uh, it's one of those things, was, by the way, that like she she sees that there's a a room that she's not aware of in the blueprint, but like you kind of have to have seen the movie to understand that that's what you'd be getting from you don't the audience doesn't just look at the blueprint and be like, oh yeah, that I know the layout of this building. What we haven't been in that room, you know, like it's it's very fast and loose with the clues and the mystery. I feel like they, the way they cut it together, I was able to to piece the information together well enough. But the other thing I will just mention, we've all talked about the dialogue. I really noticed this time in the opening telephone conversation between Annie and her sister, whose name escapes me. Nicole? Uh, Nicole, yes, Nicole. So in the opening telephone conversation between Annie and Nicole, it's a really exposition heavy exchange. And in particular, I think there's a line where Annie says something like, what are you, are you, how, how long has it been since you used? And she's like, that's not fair. It's been over four years since, since I got pregnant. (laughs) So yeah, like you're talking about like on the nose dialogue where characters are telling each other things that they, they should both know. So why would you need to? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yes. And yes, just so you know, she used to be a drug addict. And she has a daughter, and now she's going to call her daughter. It was very clunky. Uh, in a movie that otherwise, I feel like, doles out information. Sort of like you were saying about the blueprint, the movie tends to dole out information in very quiet ways. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, is not a lot of dialogue explaining, I feel like, the mystery. A lot of it, you really have to put together from visual clues. But, boy, they, they just... They just drop a whole lot of it there in the in the first scene. Well, while we're shitting on it, I have to say that the Google pin in the map that the ghost drops, why does she drop the pin in the park 
when if she dropped the pin at the church, that was actually where she wanted uh, Annie to go. That is a reasonable criticism. <laughs> One of the things that I've learned from this exploration of the Haunted House films is that a ghost's preferred method of communication is to is to break a picture that has some relevant information included in it. At least it's not established that the that the ghost can uh, type its initials into a poker game. Or, <laughs> yeah. You know. Oh, what lies beneath? Yeah. I think this movie, like in a, in a in a way that's shockingly dated, not that many years down the road, really tries to embrace technology and utilize at the time what was very cutting edge in terms of phones and the internet and apps and stuff like that. And I, I like that because it, it makes it less of a traditional ghost story in some ways, but it's, it's wild how quickly all of that stuff seems dated. Yeah. I, I just want to point out again, after saying bad things about it, I can watch that fucking camera glide through the hallways of that little house all night. I love the Steadicam camera work where we're following characters or no one down those hallways and around those corners and the wallpaper is so weirdly striking and ornate and antiquated and just creepy. I absolutely love the design of this house and I love the way the camera covers everything that happens. Uh, and it makes scenes very immediate and it, it takes lines that, yeah, might be clunky if you were really focused on them, but you're sort of just taking in the whole scene and it makes them kind of casual and off the cuff. And you don't really like, I didn't dwell on the fact that when I'm reading a script, I'm the first person to say that's on the nose or these characters don't need to share that information. You know, they know each other already has it, that kind of thing. But the, the, the movie has a naturalistic vibe and on all of that is kind of sleight of hand and keeping you more interested perhaps in my case in, in what's in the frame and then really sort of analyzing every little nuance of, of the dialogue and, and the acting other than the scene that I talked about before. So I don't know. It's a mixed bag. I really like this movie, but obviously it has a lot of issues. So I think this is a good place for me to kick off the ending. We get kind of a bargain bin reprise of Halloween where she uses a wire coat hanger like a fucking butterfly knife to totally deal with this guy who had her dead to rights and completely in his power. He's a serial killer, for God's sake. He's the Judas killer. He's, oh, and don't get me started. That's another whole conversation. How this infamous serial killer basically boiled down to this sort of weepy man child who's basically incapable of fending for himself other than grabbing a few pickles out of the fridge and drinking a soda. In any event, let's get back to that later perhaps, but this guy is totally derailed by a wire hanger stuck in his love handle. I don't mind Jennifer Glick's ghost giving Annie an assist by tossing her the gun so she can blow his brains out. That's a very well-executed, well-timed, well-edited, well-shot, well-everything finale. But she gets a lot of protagonist points here. And by what I mean is that she can't die. She's the protagonist. Like, she's going to have a better... She's going to be dealt a better hand than her sister or the cousin or Casper Van Dien, who, you know, just instantly gets a knife to the throat. And you can argue, well, why would, you know, would Judas handle her differently than the cop? Sure, sure, sure. But I don't feel that she really earns her victory here. 
And finally, the carry ending with the eye and the peephole is fine, but it's a little cheap. It's a little, I don't know, manipulative. And speaking of eyes, what the hell is going on with the eye color stuff in this movie? It's subtle, but her, she had one of her eyes is uh, green and one of her eyes is blue. One of Judas's eyes is green and one of his eyes is blue. But they have opposite eyes, so the right eye on one is is the opposite of the other. Uh, you know, because they're an uncle and a, and a, and a niece. And it, it feels like something that's really arty and indie, but I can't find anything conceptually sound underpinning this. And it, it's a great way to begin the movie. It's a great way to end the movie. But um, I don't know if it amounts to anything. So those are my thoughts on the ending. You mentioned that the protagonist getting a, a better hand dealt than everybody else. I I think everybody gets a better hand dealt than than Casper Van Dien, by and large. (laughs) Why are you just shitting on Casper Van Dien all night? Because it's fun. (laughs) He he looks good with that stubble, man. He is a sexy man. Yeah, it's true. I went on a date with a girl who claimed to have had sex with Casper Van Dien. I knew a girl that claimed to have blown Mark Wahlberg. I can see why a girl would say that. I can't see why a girl would claim that she had sex with Casper. <laughs> it was it was not the it was not the best date I ever went on. <laughs> so I actually like the ending quite a bit. Uh, it largely rests on for me the physicality, the very weird physicality of the Judas killer. I think that that actor just his his body and his body type, it reminded me a bit of the super tall guy in It Follows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And But it's not just that. I mean, it's his it's his movements. It's the way that he slithers, in, and slithers is the right word, in and out of these little, uh, you know, vents and things to, to move around the house. It's really creepy and unsettling. And I even especially this in this most recent viewing, I really liked that image of him sobbing on the bed. I, I mean, I couldn't tell if we were getting a glimpse into his madness or if it's a glimpse into his humanity, that he's sort of recognizing that he's a monster and, and grappling with it or if he's just terribly lonely. But it felt like giving the right amount of there's there's – worlds going on inside of this guy who's living inside of this house. It gave him a character in a way. And so then when when we really get to see him in action, he was really threatening. I mean, you're right that Annie gets a, a little more benefit of the from the screenwriter than the other characters do. But that thing where she's tied up by her hair is I thought was pretty effective. Yeah, and I actually thought that the the final sort of gunshot kill was a little meh. I wanted a little more from that, but I actually really liked the bit where the doors open up after he's dead. As much as I generally dislike the supernaturalist providence and the the ghost death has been avenged, and so now everything's right in the world, that actually felt like a tonally fitting way to demonstrate that, that, okay, you can go now. And that's it. Yeah. It kind of felt like this ghost, uh, Jennifer Glick wanted, everything was like, you've got to 
stop this guy. You've got to kill this guy. And while it's interesting that she could have previously opened doors and that might have been helpful, uh, and she doesn't, well, it's still kind of uh, a certain, a grace note that that's what she, she does at the end. Um, I did think earlier, like at least like we're talking about before, you didn't know whether Tomas was the uh, Simone or not. Well, I thought at least the first two times I saw this movie, somehow that it was her mother, Annie's mother, their mother, that was the ghost. And it, it was hard for me to get it through my head that their mother is really not a part of this. And it really is Jennifer Glick who's driving this whole thing the pact or whatever it is, the mother and the brother and the relationship and how this all worked for all these last few years where the guy disappeared and apparently stopped killing people and was just living in this house with his sister. When did he go into the hidden room? Like, has he always just been filching food from the fridge? Like all of those questions are interesting to me and I'm not saying that it won't work or it won't make sense or it's a flaw at all. I'm saying that it's more something that is so completely left unexplained or untouched upon that I'm fascinated by it and I like speculating about it. There's in that expository dialogue that I was complaining about at the beginning. One of the things that Annie says to Nicole is, don't you remember all that sick shit mom used to do to us? Maybe mm-hmm. you've forgiven her, but I'm not ready to. All we get and, of that is that they locked, she locked them in the closets. That's all we know for sure. Yeah. Combined with the fact that she walled off this room so that her brother could have a safe place, presumably knowing that he was a serial killer. It gives me enough of a picture of the mother that she's an interesting character. And I'm, I'm kind of glad they didn't disclose any more than that. That's enough detail that I, I can't imagine what this childhood would have been like. There is a Pax 2, and like if anything like you could imagine fertile ground to expand upon, it would probably be this mythology. I don't know how well it's done, of course. Nobody really talks about it. Maybe it sucks, but this is a movie where I would want, I would be certainly open to a sequel that might delve more deeply, uh, you know, into this relationship that the, the Judas and his sister had. But I, to me, it still is a bit of a flaw that we see him as this kind of sniveling man-child when he's supposed to be this prolific serial killer. And I don't quite know how all of that makes sense. He was a prolific serial killer once upon a time. So he's just lost it. He's, he's aged, I mean, how many years? By the time that we're seeing him, 10, 20 years. The implication is he stopped killing maybe with even Jennifer Glick. It could be 1989 that he stopped killing. So that is a, a long time ago. But but the when and why and what what's going on with him is certainly up for debate. Uh, well, my, my internet took a dip out, which, by the way, led me to have to enter a dark, empty room to reset the router, which is just not exactly what you want to do when you're going through the pact. Those kind of experiences always sort of underline, you know, it is it is no small feat to just make a dark room scary um, when you are going through as many haunted house movies as we are, but, you know, this movie's effective in doing that. All that to say, I, I missed everything that you guys talked about, but 
I'm sure you guys talked about the just the reveal of the of the the secret hatch, which to me is one of the most chilling images and moments in any of these films that we've seen, even though I, I knew it was coming. It's well shot. It's also just an incredible performance. I think the actor that, that plays Judas is, is very effective, uh, very physical, um, which is something that's undersold a lot, in, especially in villains. One thing I did want to point out, I don't know if anyone flagged it. I know that it's a little, it's a little, little quibble and probably something that was added on after the fact. This was definitely a case where that final moment, the final jab they give you where Annie falls asleep and we, and we see in her, in her dream that Judas's eye pops open and, and looks around was a rare misstep in a film that otherwise seemed to have tone and style down pretty pat. It felt very forced and, and, and tacked on and leading towards a, a sequel, I suppose. But it was a jab that was unneeded. To me, this was almost more damaging than the, uh, than the end of the orphanage um, in a very different way. It was just a... You didn't need that cheese at the end. I'm with you. I, I did mention that in my, my little song and dance, Rich. I'm seeing, by the way, that uh, the Pack 2 features both the same actor playing Charles Barlow, Judas, and um, Annie. Our, our, our lead is back, Katie uh, Lotz, and uh, it got a very, very dismal IMDb review of 4.4 out of 10, so... Um, maybe we don't want to check out the pack too, but yeah, different, uh, writer and director. Uh, so yeah, they just handed it off. However that happens, this was not something that the original vision was carried on. So yeah, that, that often, uh, doesn't bode well. I do notice that the actress apparently is quite, uh, known if you're into this sort of thing as a DC character on the TV shows, Supergirl, Batwoman, The Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow. She's Sarah Lance slash White Canary. It looks like she's carved out quite a a role, like many, many, many episodes. And I do think that she's got a real charisma to her, and she stands out as like the star of this movie. Good for her. Vic, would you like to start the, the, the voting? You know, I will. This was one that I really went into not knowing exactly how I was going to vote. And I have to say, after talking about this, it may be that The Pact is a better movie. But the things that are interesting about it, we've pretty much covered. I wouldn't say it's a mile wide and an inch deep, but it tells a very compact story and tells it well. And... I feel like I've got it all. Session nine, I've seen, I think, the exact same number of times, and I don't think I have it all. And I was, for, for all my issues with it, I think there's, there's more to it than there is to the pact. The pact is aiming for a solid double, and maybe it gets to third base, but session nine is swinging for the fences. And they may get they may get there and it may not, but I'm going to cast my vote for that and say session nine. I was open to the pact winning because I do see the shortcomings of session nine, 
But as I touched on before, we're pairing two American independent horror films here. And I see as many flaws in the pact if you want to nitpick, but it doesn't have the same impact on me as Session 9. I'm fucking terrified and in awe of Simon. But by comparison, the pickle eater, even though I do like his sort of Doug Jones physicality, and we could have talked about that, I really do like that the casting and the build of the guy and his look is awesome. But I think by comparison, he's kind of weak sauce. Just again, with the sort of weepiness and the lack of a plan or a vision, if you look at it critically. And I'll say that visually, the pact is better. Uh, That's a big compliment because I love the look of Session 9. I really, really like the pact. But if we're debating between two flawed but striking films, I'm always going to go with the one that creeps me out more, that poses more meaningful, lingering questions, and has more sophistication. I think there's tragic depth in Gordon, really in all of these characters and their their struggles. They're very everyday, blue-collar, working man kind of subplots. I think it all feels there's something to all of that that I empathize more with. I'm sad for Nicole and Liz, even Bill Creek, the guys, the people that die in the pack, but they're just kind of ordinary people cut down by a buzzsaw out of nowhere. We never get into the relationship between Annie and Nicole's mom and her brother. I'd like to delve into it. It could be fucking fascinating, but it isn't here. It's not in the movie. Meanwhile, I feel a lot of compassion for Gordon, for the various damaged and underachieving men on his team. Along the lines of Vic here, I just think this movie is a juicier steak. Even if I I will admit that on balance, the pact is a more classically entertaining film. So yeah, duh, I'm I'm voting for session nine. I'm going to go against type here and I'm going to vote for session nine. Yay. (laughs) I mean, I'm with you on paper, like that argument, like that does not make any sense because I would definitely much rather watch the pact again than I would watch session nine again. I found it far more entertaining. You're right. I can, I can summarize what I think was interesting about the pact. Um, pretty briefly and it's it certainly evokes like other movies that i've seen whereas i feel like session nine is certainly cut from a a certain cloth of of low budget filmmaking but it does have some unique qualities to it that i don't think i've seen elsewhere i do feel like there is more to discuss in session nine especially since (laughs) the the fact that i i felt so bored is not the right word but i was not engaged in certain parts of the film. And I feel like maybe I've missed things that are worth at least trying to understand before I, I try to cut this film down. Not that I want to cut this film down. I don't. Um, I want to, it's like the shining. I want to see what you guys see in it. Um, I think Vic used the phrase uh, ghosts as, as Providence. Um, I just don't care for haunted house tales where the ghost is trying to lead our main character to uh, to the answer, as we discussed. And that might have been the nail in the coffin. Although I did find mm-hmm. um, what's-her-name Glick um, to be to have some pretty terrifying visuals. Um, that's just not the kind of haunted house movie I want to go down with. And Session 9, despite whatever else I may say, is a much more haunted house. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It didn't really occur to me, but the classic, the real villain here is the human. And even though we all like Devil's Backbone, and we're going to be touching on that again soon, like that is kind of more cut from that cloth of it's the people you have to worry about and the ghosts are really just trying to help. And, and I agree with you, like given the choice, I'm going to go with evil fucking demon Simon every day of the week. Cause that's what I look for in horror. Uh, Vic, what are your thoughts uh, to wrap this baby up and put it to bed? As we're getting into this, and this is again, our first step into what, criteria we're going to use to define the great horror films. I think that's something we come back to over and over again, is that the supernatural element, the the malevolent force, when it is looking for some kind of justice or balancing of the scales, it's less scary. If yep. it just wants to watch the world burn, if it just wants to sow despair and, and havoc and death, that is really scary. And somehow, even if you maybe have a movie that's more deeply flawed, but has that element, that's going to win out by and large. It is for me. In, in a movie like this, or in, a, in some of these, like the ghost is actually more like an angel. And that's fine. We talked about that. Like, if you don't like angels, well, maybe you can kind of, you know, because of all the sort of freighted things that go along with institutional religion and Christianity and whatever faith that, uh, that we're talking about, ghosts can be somewhat of a, a more palatable alternative where maybe, you know, there is some kind of supernatural force that, that is out there looking out for us. And, and, and that's, I can accept that. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not buying into that either, even though I, I do find it, um, you know, of course the allure is there. So I, that is part of why I'm, I'm not drawn to that kind of a story. Sort of a ersatz angel is what a, what a, a nice ghost is. I'm glad we talked about that. Cause that, that is one of the things that these movies, some of them are, uh, consistently, that's a card they're playing and yeah, it's, it's not for everyone. But I hope this podcast is for everyone. Because <laughs> that's a wrap, folks. <laughs> we will come back uh, soon enough, and we hope you will join us at that time. I'm John Evans, and I am joined, as always, by my amazing two co-hosts. Guys, Vic, Rich, say goodnight, and uh, wish everyone Godspeed in whatever the hell they're facing uh, next in their lives. <laughs> Good night and Godspeed with whatever the hell you're facing next in your life. <laughs> yeah, good night and uh, good luck. Oh, after I talk about angels, I immediately go to Godspeed. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, I didn't have an ending ready, so that's what that's what you get. That's right. That was good.